And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 7 for our Old Testament scripture reading. Here, this prophet of God has been given a mysterious vision, one that is explained to him both here and explained to us with greater detail in the New Testament. What a word picture it is, just as the first Adam was called to subjugate the beasts of the earth under his rule, so now Daniel here has a vision of the Son of Man, the Son of Adam, who subjugates the beastly world powers under his own rule by his death and resurrection. Uh, We have here in the bulletin, we'll begin in verse 19. Actually, let's back up a few verses uh, to verse 15. This is after. uh, Well, actually, let's begin in verse 13. Let's just read the whole book. No. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, a glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, him whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, whose kingdom shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, and I asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of these things, where he said that these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all of the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes, and a man that spoke great things and that seemed greater than all of its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints, and it prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and it shall trample it down and break it into pieces. And as for the ten horns, out of his kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, a times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. This kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, turning with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 13, where we find that the Apostle John is given a vision of this same scenario that describes uh, the world power 
as it stands in opposition to God in its totality between the two advents of Christ, between his ascension and his return, describing the nations as a monstrous beast. I want us to give particular attention to what happens to the saints during this interim period between the two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is to say, those who dwell in heaven. Also, It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. And we look at this and we ask, what does all this mean? And now, John tells us what this vision means. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Now, turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew for our New Testament, uh, or our sermon text this morning. As we come to an end of this section in the greatest sermon ever preached, The Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at verses 10 to 12, but since this is our last week in the Beatitudes, I think we would do well to hear the whole thing once more. Matthew 5, let's begin in verse 1, reading through verse 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's Holy Word, let us go before the Lord in prayer and ask that He would open our eyes to understand these great truths. 
A gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we come to your word and we hear the great blessing that your Son pronounces upon the citizens of heaven, uh, that you would cause us to understand and to believe those things that you teach, that we might be prepared uh, for those trials that befall us in the course of our earthly pilgrimage. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we find it is the theme of every inspirational athletic movie ever. The ragtag bunch of misfits are assembled together, and despite being untrained, unqualified, and inexperienced, they overcome all the odds and they win the gold. At the very least, the respect of their peers. doesn't matter which sporting event you like, there is probably a movie for it. Whether it be uh, a bobsled racing or hockey or football, we think of such movies as Cool Runnings or Remember the Titans or even Miracle, where those under-experienced collegiate Americans stood up and defeated the Soviet juggernaut at the 1980 Winter Olympics. Well, I think there's a certain analogy to be had with those particular movies, those feel-good movies where we finally see the underdog win. I think there's an analogy to be had with those movies and with our passage this morning, but even here, that particular analogy falls short, because I think it fails to do justice to the very image that our Savior evokes here in this final blessing in these series of blessings. See, as the kingdom of light penetrates the kingdom of this dark age and Satan's dark domain, a conflict emerges between the two warring camps. And our Savior tells us that the crown is not handed to the underdog who overcomes all the odds, but rather it's handed to the loser who is crushed under the weight and the gears of the machine. I think perhaps a more fitting analogy would be as if at the end of the 2017 football season, the NFL decided to confer the Super Bowl championship ring to the Cleveland Browns, who, if you recall, 2017 had a zero net win for the entire season. They didn't even compete in the final game of the Super Bowl. And that's, I think, more appropriate to what we see taking place here. It's as if Jesus is saying, blessed are the losers, for they shall receive the Lombardi trophy. See, our Savior pronounces a blessing upon His church, and He assures us not only of future victory, but a present blessing even in the midst of devastating loss. Here, Jesus gifts a kingdom to the slandered, to the abused, and to the reviled, which describes the status of the people of God in the eyes of the world until the very day that Christ returns. I'd like us to consider two things this morning. First, I want us to consider the matter of persecution the matter of which Jesus speaks here in the first part of the section. And then secondly, I'd like us to consider our inheritance. So two things, persecution and an inheritance. Now I want you to imagine yourself sitting in the crowd with those who are hearing this sermon for the very first time, hearing Jesus preach this sermon for the very first time. The rumors have been spreading from village to village and town to town, that this is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the Son of David who has come to reclaim His proper seat. 
the messianic throne itself. And as you reflect on your childhood and going to synagogue every uh, uh, Sabbath and hearing the stories that you had read, memorizing those portions of Scripture that your parents and that your local rabbi had taught you to memorize, you consider what the whole of the Scriptures had taught, that they had promised triumph and victory. And that for the past several centuries, the Jews had suffered under the thumb of one beastly empire after another. Loss after loss after loss after loss. And now, the promised Messiah, the King of all kings, has come to claim His throne, even as the nation sits under the thumb of oppression of the Roman regime. Now here comes one greater than Moses, who standing on top of a mountain proclaims not the curses of the law, but the blessings of this heavenly dominion that has begun in His own messianic work. What message would you expect to hear coming from his lips? Perhaps you might expect something like this from the pulpit. Blessed are those who take up your swords, for you will prosper as you strike down the nations. And so it's a rather startling feature, is it not, that that is not what Jesus says. In fact, it is quite the opposite. To hear that the messianic king from his very lips declares that you will actually not conquer right away. But in fact, you will suffer great trial, persecution, and loss. Not only that, but Jesus says that this is a distinct characteristic feature of being a citizen of the kingdom. Not only that you will lose, but that that loss itself is a distinct blessing. That you are to look at the loss as if it's the very thing that God has planned for you. You look at Verse 11, when Jesus says, blessed are those, when is that blessing coming? He says, well, blessed are you not after others have slandered you and you have been vindicated. No, he says, blessed are you when others slander you and deride you. When those things happen, you are blessed. Of course, to be certain, we have to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that you're going to be blessed when you get into trouble for doing something stupid. It's the very thing that First Peter writes uh, to uh, the church, as we heard earlier. He says, you're, you're not being blessed when you're suffering under the, you know, being thrown into prison for having stolen something or for having committed murder or adultery. I think many of us are familiar with the term martyr complex. It's kind of the equivalent of the person who kicks a rabid dog, and then when they get bitten in the leg, they go, why is this happening to me? No, Jesus sets the terms for the blessing. He says you're blessed when you suffer for righteousness' sake. Maybe to to continue with the the sports analogies this morning. Try to give one sports analogy a year. It's that team where they finally make it to the final championship. And despite the fact that though the game is close, they lose at the last minute, not because uh, they had failed, but because the referees have had it out against them and have called uh, a foul against them wrongly time after time after time. I think many of us uh, recall um, perhaps moments if you played sports in high school of that referee who kept giving one bad call after another. And, and, and it grates against you. It, you chafe under it. See, it's not right that this thing should happen. 
That is what Jesus is talking about here. It's suffering. Even though you're doing the right thing, having those in authority persecute you nonetheless. To suffer for righteousness' sake, what does it mean? Well, Jesus here clarifies what is meant in the following verse when he says, blessed are you when you suffer for my namesake, for those things that are done on my account. To suffer for righteousness' sake is to suffer for the cause of Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is that of all the godly virtues that the Spirit works in our heart, as this great blessing is pronounced upon the citizens of heaven, Jesus adds this sober warning. Purity, peaceableness, piety, all these godly virtues that uh, the Spirit calls us to, and the Spirit works in our hearts, making us look like Christ. None of these will shield us from trouble in this age. How many of us always expect the opposite? You learn to do the right thing, and then you know, you'll get your just desserts. Good will come from it. Of course, from Jesus' perspective, good will come from it at the end. But doing right, suffering for the sake of Christ, actually entails you should prepare for it and buckle up. Jesus says the world will hate it, and you will suffer on account for it. Do not be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you. These things will not shield you from trouble in this age, rather they will only invite it. There is no need to seek out persecution and suffering. Trials will come. Paul and writing to his beloved disciple Timothy, says this very thing. He says this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is inevitable in one form or another. Even while the evil and the imposters continue going from bad to worse, the righteous will suffer. Prepare for it. Don't be surprised when it happens, Peter writes. Our Savior says the very same thing here. In fact, I'd like you to consider this. As you know, David has been preaching through 1 Peter uh, once a month in the evenings. Might I suggest to you that 1 Peter is one lengthy exposition of this particular beatitude. What it means to suffer in union with Christ for the sake of Christ. You ask yourselves, where does such persecution come? And you think, well, does it come from the state? Peter says, yes, there. But in fact, it comes from every human institution. Where we could be persecuted both as a collective group, but even as individuals on multiple levels. Peter writes of the slave and the servant being mistreated by the unreasonable master and employer. Peter writes of the wife who is mistreated by her husband on account of her godliness, and the system is not working to fix the problem. It can attend your peer group. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 4, where particular Christians have been ostracized from their peer group because they're refusing to get drunk at the town kegger on Friday nights. You refuse to compromise. And now you find yourself outside the inner circle where once you had that close circle of friends, you now find yourself on the outs being mocked by those you thought were your closest companions. 
And according to 1 Peter, all these are forms of persecution. I think so many of us, when we think of persecution, we automatically go to those extreme cases. You think of those who were burned at the stake under Bloody Mary's reign in England during the Reformation. You think of those Christians who were tossed to the lions in the second and third centuries. And you think, oh, that's persecution. What we find in the New Testament is that persecution is a much broader uh, word where it rightly recognizes the pain that comes from the power of the tongue as it is wielded even against the people of God. When you are mocked and you are abused and reviled by your friends for refusing to compromise, when you have been shunned by your family because you've embraced the Christian faith, when your entire family either embraces a different faith altogether or no faith at all. See here, Jesus describes persecution as it comes in multiple forms. And the examples he actually lays on, the emphasis that he places are actually on those verbal assaults. The gossip, the lies, the slander, the false accusations. Being the subject of a text chain might not sound as extreme as being tethered to a stake. But for anyone who has ever found themselves as being the subject of gossip or slander, you know how painful it really is. And you have a Savior who understands how painful that really is as well. And yet Jesus says, when that happens to you, you are blessed. Persecution comes in so many forms. And how quickly we here as Christians in the West buckle under the threat even of peer pressure long before it ever comes to blows. We should not deceive ourselves into thinking that we will lay down our lives for Christ if we have not first learned to lay down our lusts and our desire for social acceptance. There's nothing wrong with being wanted to, uh, wanting to be accepted by your friends. The great danger comes when that becomes more important than loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you are slandered, know that you are blessed because Jesus gives this particular promise that the heavenly kingdom is yours. Here we come not only to the command in the whole, I mean, sorry, here we come to the only command in the whole of the Beatitudes. If you notice this, uh, the first 12 verses, Jesus has not given one single command. He has pronounced blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. And it is only here as he closes this particular section of his sermon that he finally gives an imperative. What is that imperative? It is this. Rejoice and be glad. I don't know if you've ever read the Stephen Ambrose novel or had seen the miniseries that came out 20 years ago, Band of Brothers. It's about the men of Easy Company, the 101st Airborne, uh, this particular uh, 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 troop of army men who were part of the invasion of Normandy, Operation Market Garden, the Battle of the Bulge, and were even significant in capturing Hitler's lair in the Austrian Alps. I remember seeing an interview with 
the, the, the leader of this company, Dick Winters, just a few years before he died, heavily decorated war hero. And he tells this story as uh, he's spending his years in retirement out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He says that one of his grandchildren came up to him and said, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? He responds, he says, no, I'm not a hero, but I've served in a company full of them. I want you to consider the company into which you've been called. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ called to suffer in this world for the sake of Christ. It might not feel like a blessing in the midst of the firefight, but consider the honor that comes simply by virtue of being drafted into this heavenly army where you're called not to take up a sword, but to take up a cross. That is what Jesus says here. Notice the company into which you have now been called, for this is the same way in which the prophets of old were treated. What a distinct blessing. You, know, you read the Old Testament, you think about Elijah and Elijah, Elisha, or Obadiah, or of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And all of these, and you think of the great heroes of the faith, and now Jesus says that was uh, the situation for the prophets under the old covenant now becomes true for the entire church under the new. Just as they had suffered in so many ways, even at the hands of the religious establishment. So now that is the great blessing that has been poured out upon you. The time for courage is now. And yet, as Paul says elsewhere, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We're not talking about a call to arms and taking up sword or gun or rifle. And he says, no, the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal, but they are mighty to the demolishing of strongholds. It is the power of the Word of God and obedience to all that God has commanded us to believe and to do. There's a warfare that comes not by taking up arms, but by taking up our cross and counting the cost and imitating our Savior, who when He was assaulted, He did not retaliate. When He was insulted, He did not provocate. When He was slandered, He did not reciprocate. But rather, He continued to entrust Himself to the One who does all things justly. See, there's a double blessing here. For every other one of these blessings, Jesus says, blessed are. For here's the reason why. But you notice here, Jesus repeats Himself twice to those who are persecuted, as if to give an extra set of assurance that this is, in fact, not a curse, but a blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. For great is your reward in heaven. And here it comes, a reward that is not merited, but it is a reward that is inherited. We are not brought into the kingdom of heaven because of our trials. Rather, we are brought into the kingdom through and by these very trials. Thomas Watson in commenting on this particular blessing says that the reward is the legacy which free grace bequeaths. 
You see, the church's victory over the forces of darkness does not come through human effort, but it comes at the moment of a distinct apocalyptic, cataclysmic crisis at the end of this age. Just as Daniel himself had foresaw in his beastly vision, just as the Apostle John saw in his vision, that it is given for a time these beastly empires to wage war against the saints and for them to prevail. And yet the victory is assured on the day when Christ comes and subjugates those beastly empires under His feet. When He comes to slay sin and death once and for all. Notice the timing of when we receive this reward. It is not here on earth, but it is in heaven. It undercuts all of the health and wealth promises of those prosperity pulpiteers who try to promise too much in this life. There is to be sure, a great reward that comes. But it is a reward that is reserved for the people of God in the life to come. And yet at the same time, we must note that though the reward still remains in the future, the blessing is now. Notice this, that Jesus does not say, blessed shall you be when you come into your inheritance. That is certainly true. Rather, He says, you are blessed now. When you are slandered, you are blessed. Perhaps if we can drive this particular point home more personally for the life of this congregation. Two years ago, in the midst of the pandemic, this church was blessed. Though by all outward appearances, it did not look like it. With all the gossip and slander, with all the forms of outrage and ridicule that took place. And we think, how painful this is. Listen to the words of Jesus. When those falsely accuse you for my namesake, when that happens, you are blessed. I think if for those of us looking back just a few years ago, we think, how could that ever have been a blessing? I hope you recognize the way, the, the upside down way in which these blessings now come. It, it defies human logic and expectation. And yet we see this not just with this final blessing, but with every blessing. How is it that the first half of every blessing begins with a characteristic trait that is marked by suffering, by grief, by loss? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hungry and recognize that they are uh, deficient in their own righteousness. Blessed are those who continually take it on the cheek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. First half of each of these blessings is marked by intense suffering and humiliation even. And yet we see the second half to each of these blessings being marked by exaltation and glory and joy. 
Where those who mourn shall be comforted. Those who are thirsty shall find everlasting satisfaction. Those who are merciful, even as they have to take it on the chin, they themselves will receive mercy. That those who are the peacemakers, they shall in fact one day see the very joy of every longing heart. God Himself. They will be adopted and called children of God. And that they will inherit both heaven and earth. Not just earth itself, but the whole kit and caboodle. Notice that, that each of these blessings are marked by a distinctive pattern of humiliation and exaltation, of suffering than glory. It is the same pattern that depicts the work of our Savior, who suffered and was raised who was crucified and then exalted, who is dead, but now lives forevermore. The great blessing is found in this, that God has delighted to make you look like your Savior. What does that look like in this life? Well, it comes in the form of suffering and persecution and false accusations and death. But know this, you're not suffering alone. Jesus went to the cross alone. But now the whole New Testament calls it a participation in Christ's sufferings. That is something that you are now experiencing in union with your Savior. See, we have a Savior who bore the curse. Now that we undergo all of these particular trials, it is not a curse that we experience. Now we simply are called, I shouldn't say simply, but now we are called still, nevertheless, to undergo and experience a cross. It's the path of Christian discipleship. If any man wants to follow me, he must what? He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is what the Christian life looks like. Perhaps you are here today and you have not trusted in Christ and you're thinking and contemplating, is it worth it? Of course, the answer is, by all means, yes, it is worth it, but you must consider the cost that is to be counted and tallied up in this life. That here is a call to suffering and grief and false accusation and persecution because the world will hate you. But this world is passing away. And those who stand in power will one day be subjugated under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of His return. And for those who have suffered under these beastly empires, for righteousness' sake, for Christ's sake, they will be brought into a heavenly inheritance. Again, Thomas Watson says this, that persecution is the legacy bequeathed by Christ to His people. Do you wish to be more like Christ? How many of us find ourselves praying that in our devotions, in our quiet times? It's a good prayer. But know what you are praying and know how the answer, the form in which that answer will come. To know Christ is to fellowship with Him. And we are called to fellowship with Him in His sufferings now that we might know His friendship and glory. Paul calls it a participation in the sufferings of the Messiah. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and Philippians chapter 3, 
verses 7 to 11. It is a suffering with Christ, even as Isaiah himself writes, saying that Christ himself, the Messiah, was afflicted in our affliction. There is a solidaric bond that's taking place here. That when we suffer, Christ feels it. And that as we suffer, we come to know the sorrow and suffering that Christ himself underwent on our behalf. These trials are painful, but compared to the eternal weight of glory, they are but light and momentary. So as our Savior says here, and as Peter himself repeats these commands in his letter, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we hear this distinct blessing that is pronounced on your people, uh, that we would face uh, our forthcoming trials with joy, uh, knowing that you give us moments of uh, peace and calm, and yet you also bring us into times (coughs) of grief and affliction. May we be content with all things and rejoice knowing that you have united us to yourself in the person of your Son, that we might know him and the resurrection power that is found in the fellowship of his sufferings. We ask these things in Christ's name.